holding the line of the conservative movement. This is Stacy on the Right on Sirius XM Patriot 125. Thank you for being with us tonight. This is such a huge moment. In fact, my social media assistant said in college they studied Cal Thomas almost exclusively for some of the classes that she took. She said we had to do so much on Cal Thomas when I was in college in journalism classes. And she was putting the show sheet together and noticed that Cal Thomas is going to be joining us tonight. This is definitely a bucket list moment for me. I'm checking this off my list of people I've always wanted to talk to. Tonight's my night. Welcoming into the show Cal Thomas, syndicated columnist and pundit, author of A Watchman in the Night, at Cal Thomas on Twitter. Thank you for joining me tonight, sir. Well, thank you, Stacey. Gee, uh, you know, when you when you hear from people who used to read you in college, uh, really makes me feel old, but I appreciate it. <laughs> well, you know, so the other thing about that is it might it might make you feel that way momentarily, but it's so fascinating because there has to be just continual encounters with you, like with you being a syndicated columnist, you have to bump into people at the airport and in public places where they want to talk to you about this or that article or, you know, this thought you've had because you're so widely read. Well, they used to do that when, especially when I was on television, you know, when you're writing in a newspaper, you don't get recognized uh, facially as much, but, you know, we live in such a uh, divisive world now that I think people are afraid to say anything. Uh, once in a while, you get a compliment, and they almost whisper it in case anybody else is standing around and uh, might be offended. <laughs> no, I, well, I feel like I just want to encourage people: if you see someone who has written things that you've loved, and you see them in public, you should feel free to go over and give that person a compliment because it's still a free country. And and I I just I kind of bristle at that. I don't want to stop living a free and uplifting life because some people might be triggered by things that I like. I think that's crazy. Yeah, well, one of my favorite stories about that, I was in Washington, D.C. once, and a man came up to me and said, uh, are you Cal Thomas? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, I watch you on TV a lot, but of course I don't agree with much of what you say. So I said to him, well, that's a handsome sport coat you're wearing. He said, oh, thank you. And then I said, but you sure are ugly. Hmm. Oh, <laughs> let the compliment stand. You don't have to qualify it. <laughs> <laughs> So now maybe the left does that all the time. The left does it all the time. I never say it. You know, well, I read your column. Of course, I don't agree with it. Well, I don't say that about you. Come on. Well, you know what I I think is interesting about that is I have have met people that I don't think are that smart, but it's it's an interesting thing to meet them in person. We don't hold the same political views, but if there's anything that they've had out in the public sphere that I could agree with. That's the thing I bring up to them, because what's the point of going up to someone and saying something mean and hateful? Like, how does that serve any purpose at all? It's much better to say, you know, one thing I do like about your commentary is or, you know, you shared this or that on television. I even Barack Obama, I've never met him. But if I had the opportunity to, I would compliment him on his work with mentoring. They had this mentoring program where they had uh, experienced professionals who were college graduates and they would go back and they would mentor college students at HBCUs. Mm-hmm. And it was a really popular program that wasn't really covered well in the media that he ran almost the entire time he was the president. And so you had hundreds oh. of these college students mentored by professionals. And I think it really helped the trajectory of their careers. So I would compliment him on that. Well, Stacy, you know, uh, division sells. It sells in ratings on TV. 
It sells in fundraising and it sells in politics. And one of the things I've tried to do over my almost 40 year career as a syndicated columnist is uh, not to attack people personally, but to uh, critique their ideas, those that I agree with and those that I don't. We have enough enemies outside the country wanting to destroy us. We shouldn't be trying to destroy each other. You may recall, uh, not that you lived that long ago, but Abe Lincoln's uh, second inaugural address in which he said even nearing the end of the Civil War, which killed more Americans than any other war we've been in, we are not enemies but friends. Now, if we looked at each other like that, if you're a Republican, you looked at a Democrat like that or the other way around, then I think we could gain a hearing for our ideas. This is one of the things Bob Beckel and I did uh, for our uh, common ground column for 10 years for USA Today. Uh, Bob was a liberal Democrat, but uh, we we got to know each other, became incredibly close and wonderful friends. And, uh, and he listened to me and I listened to him. And once in a while, I'd agree with him. And once in a while, he'd agree with me. But we don't do that anymore. And uh, I think that's a shame. It is. It is a shame. So I'm. that's a perfect segue into the book. And I'm holding it here in my hot little hands. I'm so excited. Um, it's called A Watchman in the Night. What I've seen over 50 years reporting on America. And so I flip straight through to the preface and you start off with a quote from yourself. Ask me a question and I will give you my answer. This is what I've done and, and am continuing to do as I seek to serve God first and then my country. Mm. And so in writing and talking to people for almost 50 years, like interviewing newsmakers and people who maybe at the time didn't seem as if they were quite as newsworthy as they turned out to be. You've interviewed so many people and you've talked to so many people. How do you feel? And you kind of gave us a taste of it, but how do you feel things will look in another 25 years if we stay on the same trajectory we're on now? Well, in a previous book, I, I talked about the common denominators of great nations and superpowers that have collapsed in the past. Uh, three of them, I think, are uh, are affecting us right now. One is uh, massive national debt. We have more than a $31 trillion debt right now, unheard of in American history or any other history. Second, uh, uncontrolled immigration without assimilation. Who, who denies that that's a problem other than Secretary Mayorkas, who claims the border is closed? And third, a loss of a shared moral value system. Now, what makes the United States think that we're any different from those other nations in which these three viruses affected and that we can survive when they didn't? I think we're living at a very dangerous time in America right now. And if we don't renew those old values that sustained America, that founded America uh, and sustained us through uh, economic downturns and, and various wars, uh, then we're going to go the same way of these other countries. I couldn't agree more. And so that's what makes the way you've laid out your book so interesting to me. You you have literally every single year here and every year you name after something consequential. You start in 1984, the year of a landslide for Ronald Reagan, and you go all the way through. And, and every one of these titles, I actually can think of exactly what it was that made you say like the year of Monica Lewinsky. That's a no brainer. Yeah. The year of Columbine yeah. and impeachment. <laughs> I skip yeah. ahead the yeah. year to the the year of the Iraq war. Um, you mm. Let's come into the modern era, the year of the Boston Marathon bombings, the year of Charlie mm. Hebdo attack, the year of government shutdowns. This is kind of like walking through our history year by year. And of course, other things happen. But you pulled out 
what you felt was what made that year noteworthy, the, the thing that I guess most of us talked about. What was it like walking through these years with that in mind? Well, I went through 4,000 columns that I've written since 1984. It's just amazing to hear that figure repeated. But um, it's not a column collection, but as you say, it is an observation of the events that occurred in those years, the major ones, and my take on them. Uh, I think one of the things that uh, we have to remember is that if we don't learn from history, we are doomed to repeat it, as the saying goes. And I fear that uh, a lot of people think that, you know, we just crawled out of a cave. We uh, don't we have to invent the wheel and the use of fire. Uh, But that's not the case. We have a history. And uh, if we learn from that history, update it as necessary and move forward. But if we just think that uh, we are the first people ever to walk the earth and because we have the Internet and when I started writing my column, there was no such thing. (laughs) Then I think we're uh, we're in danger of going the way of other nations. Uh, this is kind of a, a diary, a roadmap. I think younger people will uh, will be interested in some of the earlier history of it, and uh, older people will need to be reminded, will want to be reminded of uh, of what we have come through and where we're headed. Yeah, and and I, I I think you're correct on both of those fronts. There are different viewpoints. Obviously, you know, people that are known as boomers will have a different viewpoint of uh, 1987 than, you know, Gen X or Gen Z. But that's that's immaterial because what you've done is you've written about it for every group. So everyone can come into it with whatever perspective they have and become informed on why you felt like 2009 was the year of the Great Recession. So talk to me a little bit about um, you have one of the chapters here is about, you know, Mike Brown and and Ferguson. And I think that was a real turning point for our country where the Democrats' obsession with race was finally brought to full realization. And almost every year after that seemed to me to have more and more an ever-increasing focus on Uh, racial politics, racial identity, and division. Yeah, well, if I've got a column coming tomorrow uh, on uh, uh, President Biden's speech at Howard University last Saturday at uh, commencement. And uh, this is a historically black college. It's been around for a long time. It's graduated many, many people who have been incredibly successful in law and other professions. But his speech sounded like uh, we were back in the days of the Ku Klux Klan, which, by the way, was founded by a Democrat. And, you know, the Democrats were a little late coming to civil rights. I mean, it was Lincoln. It was the Republicans. And even up through the 1960s, when Lyndon Johnson had to call on Republicans to help pass civil rights legislation because the Southern Democrats were opposed to it. So I think we need to be reminded of some of these things. And this is not a racist nation. We have made more progress in ensuring rights for African-Americans than any other nation has uh, has ensured rights for its minorities. I think it's something to be proud of. Are we perfect? Of course not. But if you constantly focus on this, you know, Biden said a few years ago, the Republicans want to put you back in chains. Now, what kind of language is that? He promised to be a uniter. He promised to get rid of this toxic language that he thought uh, President Trump was guilty of using. And yet he's using it as much or more than uh, than Trump did. I think it's uh, and the media, of course, drive this. You mentioned Ferguson, Missouri. You know, they promoted that hands up, don't shoot fiction much like they promoted the Russian collusion fiction. And then when they're caught telling a lie, they just say, oh, well, you know, it it doesn't matter anymore. Or 
in the case of Russian collusion, you have all the media people not apologizing at all, but making excuses. The worst kinds of excuses, because the, the fact is, all Americans are operating in some form of unity with people who have a different ethnic background than themselves. Our country is racially integrated. And in all areas of life, you can find opportunities or are, you know, basically your situation, your circumstances call for you to work with people of different ethnic backgrounds. And if we were really as racially divided as they say, we would never have any peace at all. There are over 40 million black Americans. I mean, if if black Americans were constantly under racial strife in a way that was similar to the civil rights era, it would really be a dastardly place to live. I mean, there just would be no peace at any time. So we know that's not true, but they still persist in the narrative. Well, it it works for them uh, uh, electorally. I mean, Trump said a few years ago, really a a great line. He said uh, to a black audience, he said, why do you continue to vote for these people? Your schools are a mess. Your cities are a mess. uh, Your unemployment rate is higher than anybody else, yet you keep voting for them. Look at this uh, mayor who just got elected in Chicago, just inaugurated a day or two ago, replacing Lori Lightfoot. He's more liberal than she is. And, you know, he was defund the police, anti-police. Now, you know, the African-American people in Chicago voted overwhelmingly for him, even though they're they're concerned and rightly so about the crime wave. You have 15, 20 shooters, uh, people shot every weekend in Chicago. Some of them die. Uh, babies hit by uh, stray gunfire. I mean, this is crazy. Why would you continue to do that? And Trump said, try somebody else. Try the Republican Party for a change. And I think that's a message, especially with schools. And uh, what, one of the few side benefits of COVID was uh, the the discovery by a lot of parents of what was being taught in their schools and the realization that they could homeschool them, or now with the spread of uh, school choice in 37 states and more coming, uh, they had an opportunity, if they couldn't afford private school, to send their kids there. This is how we rescue the country. We've got to get the next generation, the kids, out of these uh, indoctrination centers known as the uh, public school system, where you got drag queen story hour for kindergartners and global warming and critical race theory, and then not send them to universities where leftover hippies from the 60s are teaching anti-American history. Uh, This is the way to rescue the country by rescuing the next generation. We've got to do it right away. Right away. Absolutely. So now that we've kind of, because we you can't have an interview with a nationally syndicated uh, author of, of years and years and years without touching on, you know, thoughts about race and Ferguson. I, I feel I feel I feel as if we're robbed because I wonder sometimes, Cal, how much um, how much of the glorious, uplifting, really integral conversation we could be having, solving problems, learning from each other. How much of that time has been burned off with our continual discussion of racialized topics? Like it's because if you're discussing race, you're not discussing dot, dot, dot. It's just it's something I, I think about sometimes. How much have we lost well, you're, because yeah. we talk about that? Well, you're not you're not improving a child's education. You're not you're not uh, helping people get jobs. It's political division, uh, political division. And uh, the left, the Democrats have benefited from this for some time. But I think uh Younger black people are starting to wake up to this. You saw George W. Bush uh, get more uh, black votes than any uh, recent Republican. So did Donald Trump. And I think you just have to continue with the message that this is not about race. This is not a racist nation. White supremacy, as Biden said last 
Saturday at the Howard University speech, he said, white supremacy is the major threat to the nation. Really? Not China? Not terrorists? Not an open border? Not a $31 trillion debt? But white supremacy? Are you kidding me? Again, I just go back to the logic of a a mom. I, I just look at it as in, what would it look like if that were true? If white supremacy was an issue and the majority of the population of America still being white and over well over 40 million black people in this country, then there would be fights and shootouts and gun battles and all kinds of like resegregation. These things would be happening and it would be happening outside of the news cycle. They wouldn't be able to keep up with it because the country is now that populous where think movements like that, they're hard to ignore. You can't just sit by when you know, 40 million people are either attacking or under attack. It's impossible. So again, their own statements prove themselves to be lies. But, you know, we continue to talk about it and we continue to turn the television on when they're talking about it. I think if America in mass just cut it off whenever they brought race up, just cut it off, it would they'd stop because they need the ratings and they only talk about what gets eyeballs on the screens. Yeah, well, you know, you mentioned uh, President Obama earlier. One of one of his great phrases when he was running for president, he said, "This is not a uh, uh, black or white America. This is the United States of America." Now, that's the kind of talk we need to hear more of. Uh, you may know or have heard of Henry Louis Gates Jr. of Harvard University. The uh, professor did that wonderful series on PBS, African American Lives. He wonderfully endorsed my book. I've got quite a panoply here from him on the left to Pat Sajak of Wheel of Fortune on the right. So you kind of cover both uh, both ends of the political spectrum. But he uh, he decided to do a DNA test on himself as part of his African-American Lives uh, series where he was tracing the slavery ancestry of some prominent black Americans. So he did a DNA test on himself and found out that he was 60% Irish. I said, Skip, you don't look Irish. But that's the point. <laughs> We're all mixed up in the grand gene pool of life. There are no purebred human beings. So if you don't like a person of a certain race, you're really hating yourself because you're part of it. Part of it. And also, I noticed how, you know, when we're standing next to each other, we all look to have a different skin tone. And we've done this experiment at our house so many times, especially if we've spent the summer in the sun. And so we're darker in the summer (laughs) than we are in the winter, right? So and, and yeah. since we're black, we're not all the exact same color at my house. So even though a couple of my family members look like my husband and one of our daughters look like they're exactly the same tone. Mm-hmm. But when they're standing next to each other, depending on what time of year it is, they have wildly mm-hmm. varying skin tones. But when they were little, I used to put my hand on my lap and I say, come, everyone, put your hand next to my hand. And all of our hands mm-hmm. appeared to be the same color when they're next to each other. Oh. But it doesn't look well, that way if you take okay, a picture of yeah. us. So it's I mean, it's all yeah. just variations of the same thing. It's all we're all some variant of brown, less brown, more brown. Right. But it's all brown of some sort. Well, Stacy, and remember that great line from Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., uh, where he said, it's not about the color of your skin. It's about the content of your character. And if you're going to focus on the externals, you're never going to improve any life. But if we talk about character, integrity, honesty, fidelity, and all of these other virtues that used to be what Thomas Jefferson called self-evident truths, but now truth has become subjective and not objective. If you have one set of truths and I have another and they're opposite, it's okay as long as we feel good about ourselves. Well, I remember something uh, the ABC anchor Ted Koppel said some years ago. He said, truth 
is not a polite tap on the shoulder. Truth is a howling reproach. I always love that line. It's true. Um, so the things that I would say to someone that are true that don't make you howl are probably not as consequential as the things I would say that do offend and prick the conscience and possibly, you know, are a rebuke or at least a chastisement or a criticism. And we need all of mm. those things, not just the compliments and flowery language. And, you know, the grownups who've matured and have experienced a few things in their lives know that. And the others want to avoid being triggered at all costs, which is a very dangerous uh, position to leave yourself in for an extended period of time. It actually dumbs you down and makes you unable to hear dissent, which is that's not it, not humanity at all. No. Well, look, it's what's happening at some of our universities. You probably saw the video two weeks ago of this federal judge who was invited to Stanford University in California and uh, the head of D diversity, uh, inclusion and equity. Uh, three words that uh, you put the first letters together, it uh, spells die, uh, <laughs> chastises him. And the audience chastises him. And people walked out on him. And he's an invited guest. He's a federal judge, for heaven's sake. Uh, and they have trigger words and safe spaces on college campuses. I hope none of, none of these people go into the military. And, but then you have the military now that is becoming woke. And you have uh, sessions about race and transgenderism and LGBTQ plus. Is this really what China is doing as they build up their military and threaten to invade Taiwan while we're focusing on all this other stuff? It's absolutely suicidal. It's suicidal because the Chinese are focusing on toughening up their their population. They're actually um, mm. elevating the idea of manhood, manliness, um, you know, have, yeah. instead of trigger warnings and uh, toxic yeah testosterone or toxic manhood they're actually yeah. rewarding their young men for displays of you know heroism and 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 mm -hmm. competence and this is something we well, used to have built into our society yeah. not only that but they're way ahead of us in reading and the sciences too and look what we're focusing on i mean we've got fourth and fifth graders who cannot read at grade level now uh, you look at these national surveys and they're th the same every year they're trending downward uh, we we are we have our kids in the I don't but we uh, a lot of people have their kids in these public schools that uh, focus on non-academic things and then a lot of employers when they get out say we have to retrain these kids because they haven't been taught basic things like showing up on time for work and actually doing the job they're getting paid for while they're there uh, it, it's amazing you talk to these employers that they are shocked at the kind of products that are being turned out from our public schools and universities because they do not share the work ethic that previous generations had. So this is where I think the most important conversations that we need to have, not just you know among people who are like-minded like yourself and, and me, but also among people like at these academic institutions, a lot of these professors have been cowed into accepting these realities and they need to be brought back to the, the, the center, which is an academic institution is a place where debate is supposed to thrive and people are supposed to be challenged. They need to be brought back right. there. That's right. Well, I've, and I've, I've said that, uh, you know, we need to take a look at what actually works. I mean, let's get away from this emotional response to everything. For example, on economics, I, I have long advocated an outside auditor to come in or a team of auditors and audit the federal government. 
You know, Biden says we can't cut any spending. Really? With a $31 trillion debt, there's nothing that can be cut? Are you kidding me? You know, Reagan, had one of his great lines was, uh, the only proof of eternal life in Washington is a government program. I mean, it's, it was oh, a funny gosh. line, but it's true. So it's sad. easier to kill a vampire than a government program. And the analogy is a good one because both suck the lifeblood out of their hosts. So we can cut spending. I mean, you know, Bill Clinton was the last president to have a balanced budget. Now, just think about that. So if we can't cut anything and the Democrats just want to spend more and claim they're going to raise taxes on the wealthy to pay for all these spending increases, there aren't enough wealthy people in the country. If you confiscated 100 percent of their money, that could stem the the uh, the spending. Uh, the government takes in record amounts of revenue. It, it's not the revenue that's the problem. It's the spending that's the problem. And uh, unless we get that under control, uh, I fear we are headed for a recession very soon. Yeah. And unfortunately, I can't disagree with you because I <laughs> everything you're saying, Cal, is, is exactly what we've been analyzing. We've had guests come on the show. We've had economists and everyone's saying the same thing. No one runs their business this way. No one spends way more than they make and borrows even more on top of that and collects record amounts of profit and then spends way more than even every every bit of what they bring in. No household does that successfully. Uh, they end up in bankruptcy. No business does that successfully. They also end up insolvent, bankruptcy, and also being sued by creditors. There's no one else that does this except the U.S. government. And the taxpayers, we, there's no more that they can squeeze out of us. They can continue their plans to audit. Most Americans are honest and pay the amount of tax that they owe. I don't think they're going to get a lot more money out of Americans. Well, you've got half the country, uh, Stacy, that doesn't pay any taxes, and the other half pays them. Now, I've long felt that people need to have skin in the game. Even the poorest of the poor could pay a dollar. Uh, but when you have... Half of the country not paying any, any taxes at all. Let me let me tell you a quick story, and then I, I've got to run because I got to get up early and go to Nashville <laughs> for my country music career. But uh, ah, during open you. season on Medicare last year, there were four words that were in every one of the Medicare supplement ads, and these words tell you where we are as a nation: free, deserve, entitlement, and what was the fourth one? It just went out of my head. Anyway, those those. Those words, nothing about personal responsibility, nothing about uh, working out, nothing about caring for your own health first. Free, deserve, entitlement, and whatever the fourth one was. But, you know, when I was growing up, my, my values were inspiration followed by motivation followed by perspiration improves any life. Now it's envying the rich. If you make $2 and I make $1, you owe me 50 cents to make it fair. No, I should be coming to you to ask how you made the $2. But we don't do that anymore. And politicians play to the lower nature of a lot of people. And it's it's really disgraceful. It's not the kind of philosophy on which this country was built and allowed us to uh, sustain ourselves through great national and international challenges. All right. So you have an early day. I could talk to you for at least another 30 minutes, probably more. But that's just my thing. I love talking to authors and I love talking to syndicated columnists. Cal Thomas, I have your book. I noticed there's pictures in here. I'll talk to the listeners about this after you and I disconnect. Uh, it's a watchman in the night. 
what I've seen reporting, what I've seen over 50 years reporting on America. The book is available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you, Stacey. You did a great job. Appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Have a great evening. And you know what to do. Go to StaceyOnTheRight.com and check out the link. It'll take you right to where to buy the book if you're interested. Uh, I, I got to tell you, there's a picture in here. It's entitled, My First Job in Radio at WINX in Rockville, Maryland, as disc jockey and newsreader at 16. Cal Thomas, he looks like he's 12 in this picture. I guess he's 16 years old. Such an amazing career. So much fun to talk to him. Got to cross that off my, uh, my list. We'll be back. Stay there.